chapter 27, we'll begin with verse 45 and go to 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come out to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Lord, as we look to what is One of the most important things, probably the most important thing that has happened in the history of the world. We see this and see all of these events surrounding it and um, Lord, I know I miss the weight and the depth of what's taking place before our eyes. So Lord, I pray that we would not miss that. By your Spirit's power, give us understanding. You wrote this. Help us to understand it, Lord. Help us to see the glory of Jesus, the Christ, on the cross. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, even as we've been reading this, I know that a lot of you have some questions about this text. Like, what does it mean that Jesus was forsaken? And what is going on with these people coming out of the tombs, walking into town? And what's with the darkness? And what's, what's with the earthquakes and, and the, the temple veil? There are some strange, strange events here, aren't there? And I'm going to go and tell you, we are not going to cover everything this week. And it's not for lack of wanting. I had, I had in our sermon plan, the one that Dustin told you to tear up last week, I had planned to, to, uh, to wrestle with verses 45 all the way to 61 this week and then hit the resurrection next week and then the Great Commission the week after that and we'd be done. But once I got here to this text, I realized that in order to really get it, in order to grasp the cross, we are going to need a couple weeks. Here's why. There is a, a major, major theme that runs 
the way through Matthew's gospel that we haven't talked about in a while now. Last time this came up was April 4th of last year when we were studying Jesus' answer to that question, what is the greatest commandment? And before that, the last time we had talked about this really major theme was Christmas of 2018, which was a long time ago. And this, this theme is so important to understanding the rest of Matthew that I thought it fitting that we would pause for a little bit today and do some review, okay? So I want you to think back to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, and if you weren't with us in 2018, that's okay. Some of you, uh, it's a new year, you've begun to read your way through the Bible, through your Bible reading plan, and you've just recently read the beginning of Matthew. Uh, For the rest, I'll, I'll fill you in. Matthew opens up his gospel, the book of Matthew, by telling us about Jesus's genealogy. All right, this genealogy is not an exhaustive list of every relative of Jesus's who ever lived. All right, it's, that's pretty obvious when you read the genealogy. It, it, it's instead, it's a, elegantly divided up into these three tidy sections. Matthew begins the genealogy with Abraham, and then he lists 14 generations of people, and that gets us to David. And then he starts up again with David, and he lists 14 generations and ends with the exile of God's people into Babylon. Then he picks up with the exile of God's people in Babylon, and he lists 14 generations, and it gets us to Jesus. And sort of assumed there, well, think about it. If the first section is from Abraham to David, and then the second is from David to the beginning of the exile, then the third section would say the beginning of the exile to the end of the exile, right? That would make sense. One would think. Only Matthew doesn't say that. Look what he says in Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ... 14 generations. So the, the arrival of the Christ and the end of the exile of God's people, these are presented to us as synonymous events. That, that's not just Matthew, though. That, that is the Jewish expectation. That's why Matthew writes it this way. He's Jewish. This was how... The Messiah or the Christ was anticipated. The Christ was to bring with him the restoration of God's people, the the reconciliation of of God's people back to God. I want you to think about this. Jesus' genealogy is Matthew's introduction to the gospel. And we know how introductions work. In an introduction, you say what you're going to write about. And, And the end point of the genealogy is the end of the exile and the arrival of Jesus, the Christ. So so ending the exile of God's people, or what really is beginning to end the exile, is what Matthew wants us to see as one of the most important intents or or goals or ambitions of Jesus' ministry. So that end of the exile theme 
is that really important theme that I want us to look at? I want us to be aware of this as we move into these last few sections of Matthew's gospel. And that's all great and wonderful, except, what are you talking about? What exile? (laughs) When we typically think of an exile, we think of, what, like Napoleon Bonaparte exiled to the island of Elba, or the Bolsheviks exiling the Tsars to Siberia, or or Major League Baseball exiling Pete Rose. To, To be exiled means to be separated or barred or sent away. Exile of God's people is no different. They were sent away from the presence of God. Not to say you can ever really be away from the presence of God. God is everywhere, right? Psalm, Psalm 139.8 says of the presence of God, If I ascend into the heights of heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere. Jonah found that out, right? Jonah tried to leave the presence of God. He tried to flee, but wherever he went, God was there. He could not escape him. But think of exile as being sent outside of the blessing of God's nearness. When Israel was sent away, when they were exiled, they were deported from the holy land where God's blessing was, the inheritance that God had given them. They they were driven away from the temple. They were sent to Babylon, a place where where they would be servants to people who worshipped other gods. Now, God had told them, he told his people way back in the book of Deuteronomy, so if you're in your Bible reading plan, you'll be in Deuteronomy in a few weeks. Way back in Deuteronomy, as, as, they, as they were going into the good land, God's people out of the Exodus going into the good land, the promised land, God told them eventually they would fall into idolatry. They, they would turn from the Lord, and, and they would be cursed because of it, and they would be exiled from the land because of their turning from the Lord. And they... That's exactly what happens eventually. Because of God's mercy, it it took a while. It took a lot longer than than, than you'd expect. God is extremely merciful. He gives his people, as you read the Old Testament, he he gives his, his covenant people warning after warning after warning. And yet they continue to seek after other gods, to to break break covenant with God. Eventually God turns them over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And and those outsiders capture the land, they destroy the temple, and they take the people away. And from Deuteronomy all the way to Malachi, that's the story. God's people are in his blessing, in his presence, and, and then because of disobedience and idolatry, there's a removal of the blessing and banishment away from his good presence. Really similar to what happened to Adam and Eve, isn't it? They were in God's presence in the garden where there is life and provision. Adam breaks covenant with God and he's banished, exiled from the garden. Interestingly, and this is going to come up next week, God placed a sword-swinging cherubim in front of the garden to keep Adam out. It's going to come up again later, so hold on to that. Well, if you know the history of Israel, you know that there came a point when when God's exiled people sent to Babylon returned. 
That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, under the good graces of, of King Cyrus, the people returned from exile in Babylon. They rebuilt the temple, and from there on, they lived in the land. They were, they were back, only they weren't. Even though they were home, it wasn't a true return. There, there, was no, there was no restoration of God's kingdom. They were still under Persian rule. The, the one they called the son of David, whose name was Zerubbabel, he was the leader of God's people, but he was not their king. He was a subject of the Persian king. It's hard to say, as we say of Jesus, son of David and son of God. For Zerubbabel, it was more like son of David and son of Persia. And if you read about the return from Babylon, you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll, you'll find God's people rebuilt the temple, but that rebuilt temple was not what it once was. And the riches of the temple that once were, were paltry compared to what they once were. And worst of all, even with the temple rebuilt, the glory of God did not return. Persian rule of the land would eventually give way to the Greeks, who would eventually give way to the Romans. And all the while, God's people were never free. They were never sovereign. Living in the land was nothing like having King David or, or King Solomon rule over them. It was as if they were still in exile. So as you move, just in, in, if you look at redemptive history, as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that is the political context of God's people, as well as the spiritual context. They were strangers in their homeland, and though they've returned, they've, they've come back to the place of promise, they're still alienated from God's blessings. Strangers from God waiting for things to get better. And so at the beginning of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John include this, John the Baptist comes along, and John the Baptist is the forerunner of this hope for restoration. And John's message is repent for the kingdom of God is near. What kingdom? The, the kingdom that we, we used to have when God ruled over us through his Messiah King. That kingdom is near. The, the true return from spiritual exile is near. And the reason why all four Gospels include John the Baptist is because John's call was expected. It, it didn't come from nowhere. John the Baptist was, was calling on God's people to repent and return to the Lord because way back in Deuteronomy, when I, remember I told you Deuteronomy talked about this coming curse? It also says in Deuteronomy 30, God said, after you fail to obey my commands, you will be exiled. And then, then look what Deuteronomy 30 says, Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, the exile, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again 
from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. It's a restoration, isn't it? First comes the repentance, then comes the restoration. So if you've ever wondered why John the Baptist is so essential to the telling of the Gospels, it's because God's people had to be brought to repentance. They had to return to the Lord before before they, they could be restored. And then God would gather them back in. That's what John's ministry is all about. Repentance in preparation for reconciliation. Repentance in preparation for the end of spiritual exile. And so at the climax of John's ministry, along comes Jesus. The long-awaited king of the long-awaited kingdom has arrived to do what? Well, the expectation is he's arrived to lead his people out of exile. And how do we know Jesus is this king? Well, John says he is, and and Matthew gives us all these clues. At, At his baptism, Jesus was anointed as the Christ by the Spirit. And then God speaks, and he's identified as the beloved son. And when he was baptized, he was baptized the same way a priest would be cleansed before going in to make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus is baptized on behalf of Israel as Israel's anointed priest king, Messiah. He then, if you remember the story in Matthew 4, he's led into the, the wilderness. And that was an echo for us of Israel being led into the wilderness. And in Jesus in the wilderness withstood the temptation that Israel had failed in. Israel grumbled about being hungry. Jesus was hungry and refused to grumble. Once through the wilderness, Jesus began his ministry. So he comes out of the wilderness, he's back in town, and he begins his ministry. And you remember how he began his ministry? He chose 12 men, representative of Israel's 12 tribes. And what were those men supposed to do? Remember the first thing he told them? He told them they would be fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that call had very little to do with, with, with what, what we call soul winning nowadays. And it had everything to do with restoring God's people, bringing them back from their spiritual hidey holes. Jesus was actually referring to an old promise when he said these things. An old promise from Jeremiah that had to do everything with leading God's people out of exile. Let me show you what I mean. Jeremiah 16. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. This is Jeremiah. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, uh, up the people of Israel out of the north country, And out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah, what he's saying here is that this new exodus, this will be be greater than the first exodus. The coming time of the restoration, the end of the exile, is going to make God's glory shine more brightly than the exodus did. Isaiah puts it another way, Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. 
Isaiah says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So, so God had been previously known for making the sea dry, right? And, and a way for the people through the sea. Now he's going to make a river through the dry, a river through the dry desert to make a way for his people. God is doing a new thing, he says through Isaiah. God is doing a new thing, he says through Jeremiah, and it's going to be greater than the old thing. All the way up to this point in history, when God's people celebrated God's work, they celebrated the Exodus. The Exodus was their identity. They were the people whom God rescued from slavery in Egypt. And, and he, made his, his, he made them his own people and he established a covenant with them. The Exodus was how God made himself known to the Hebrews. But Isaiah and Jeremiah are saying, when the new age begins, when God brings his people out of exile, it will be such a, a momentous event that we will know him more for this new work than we ever knew him for the Exodus. Just, just think about the outrageousness of that for a moment. Think about all of those plagues for the Exodus. Splitting open of the sea, God's people walking across the dry sea floor, the plundering of the Egyptians, God leading with a cloud by day, fire by night, bringing water from a rock, manna from heaven, destroying the, the mighty nations that lay in Israel's path. God taking stone tablets and writing his law on them and giving them to the people. God says, the restoration that's coming will be more astonishing than any of that. More memorable than any of that. Look what God says next through Jeremiah. Same passage that we're in. Back to Jeremiah 16. This is all part of the restoration. Okay, Behold, when, when that day comes... That day of restoration, behold, I am sending for many fishers. Fishers, fishermen, declares the Lord. And they shall catch them. Now, who's them? God's people. The ones who had been scattered in the exile. The, the fishers of men will bring people out of exile and back to the Lord. That's why when the disciples were first sent out as fishers of men, they were told, don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the house of Israel only. So that's where they go. Because they're bringing Israel back to the Lord. Matthew has been showing us that from Jesus' birth and into the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus the Christ is inaugurating, he's initiating Israel's return to the Lord. The return from exile. But there's a problem. And it's a really big problem. <laughs> go back to the same passage in Jeremiah. Look what Jeremiah says next, what the Lord through Jeremiah says, but first, before any of that's going to happen, but first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they've polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. He's saying it's, it's 
it's not as simple as just bringing the people back. There are generations and generations and generations of men and women who have given themselves over to idol worship for hundreds of years. And all of that can't just be erased by fiat. Even the land, the Lord says, is stained by this sin. So even if Israel repents, it doesn't just all go away. Sin has consequences. Sin stains. Think of a man who abandons his, abandons his wife and kids, leaves his family for, for another woman. And he leaves his family impoverished without him. If that man comes back 10 years later, and apologizes, even if he's really sincere. That does not erase those 10 years, does it? Those kids have been without a father for 10 years. Who who knows that, that the accumulation of damage done during that time? Sin has consequences. And God is saying the stain, the damage from Israel's Past sin and current sin, it must be dealt with. The consequences of Israel's sin must be paid for. Their rebellion against God must be fully paid before reconciliation can happen. That's what we're seeing in Jeremiah. The restoration is coming. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. But first... Sin must be atoned for. And that's why Matthew, when he wrote his introduction, he didn't just introduce Jesus as the Christ who ends the exile. What comes right after the genealogy? Immediately following the genealogy in Matthew 1, we have the birth of Jesus. And this is how Matthew tells us that part of the story. So Mary, you you know the story, Christmas is... Recent, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph thought he should quietly divorce her in order to not cause a scene. And the angel goes to Joseph and says, look at verses 20, 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What has to happen before the restoration? This sin has to be dealt with. Well, the one who's bringing about the restoration is also the one who will deal with sin. So from the very beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew's been telling us Jesus is the Christ, he's going to end the exile, and he is the solution to Israel's sin problem. Israel's caught up in sin, and Jesus will save him, save Israel. From their sin. So, so the understanding built into the very first chapter of the book, the, the framework for the, for the entire book, tells us what to look for. Tells us to ask this question as we're reading Matthew, how is God going to accomplish all of that in the person and work of Jesus? So here we are at the end of the book, Right? We're really close to the end now. Jesus, the Christ, is on a cross. 
And the question is, what does this cross and this Messiah dying have to do with the exile and all of this, this sin problem? Well, Matthew answers the question if we're willing to go slow and listen carefully. So first of all, let's get into our text. Longest introduction you've ever heard. But here we are. We're in our text now. Notice how creation responds to Christ's death. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, so things are dark. Like creation is sad. No, there's more than that. We've seen daytime darkness like this before. This is not an eclipse. Right before the exodus from Egypt, darkness... Three days of darkness is the the penultimate curse. God brought darkness on the land for three days before the final curse, the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Remember that? And remember that was happening. Remember what was happening in that final curse when, when God killed the Egyptian firstborns. God was passing over Israel's sins. And he was creating for himself a covenant people. He was distinguishing at that time between Egypt and Israel and setting his people apart for his salvation. That was the unofficial beginning of the covenant between God and his people. Well, the end of that covenant echoes the beginning. That's why I chose Amos as our scripture reading today. In Amos chapter 8, verse 2, God says, the time of passing over Israel's sins is over. When did it begin? At the Passover. That time is over. And on on that day, when Israel's sin will be reckoned with, there will be darkness. Look at Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness at noon. Noon is the sixth hour. So when Matthew says there was darkness at the sixth hour, he's saying this is the day. This is the Amos 8 day. This is the day when Israel's sin is being paid in full in fulfillment of Amos chapter 8. This is the day of Israel's judgment and the reckoning. Look what else Amos says about this day. Really interesting. When Israel mourns over this day of reckoning, the morning will be like the morning for an only son. Look at 8.10. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Now think about the connection between Amos and Exodus. In the Exodus, Egypt was mourning for their only sons. God was passing over Israel's sin. Now in the new exodus, the restoration, Israel's sin will be dealt with and they will mourn for their only son, God's only son. So how is this Israel's reckoning? How is this judgment day? How is the cross judgment day for all of Israel? Well, Israel's Messiah is dying on their behalf. And that's why 
In the very next verse, Messiah responds the way that he does. Look at Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, after the darkness, we seen the sign. This is the Amos 8 day of reckoning, the day of judgment on Israel. Their sins are being paid for today. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we have to do some work here, but before we understand what this means, I want to tell you what this does not mean, okay? There is sometimes, oftentimes, a misunderstanding of this passage to mean that the eternal son is forsaken, whatever forsaken means, by the eternal father, and somehow the trinity is torn apart here. That confusion is a confusion, and it comes from misunderstanding of verse 46, because we kind of get caught up in the emotion of verse 46, but it also comes from a couple other verses. The reason we have this confusion is because of our knowledge of the Bible. Most bad teaching comes from the Bible. So, so look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is, this is a verse that we look at and we sort of import into what's happening here at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, so we have that knowledge because that's true. Now, now look at Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk, now prophet, speaking poetically, says God cannot look at wrong. His eyes are too pure than to see evil. So if God cannot look at sin, and Jesus is sin, then somehow the Father and Son must be separated for this time, right? That the Son, the son is sin, the Father is purity. They, they can't be together. There must be a schism between the Father and Son, and they must cease to be one, right? Makes sense? No. That's wrong, okay? So, so one of the most important Doctrines in Christianity is our doctrine of the Trinity. But in order for Christianity to, to, to work at all, for the Bible to have any unity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, it must be the case that there is only one God. And it must be the case that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons, one essence. This does not mean that there are three gods that know each other and love each other so much that they can read each other's minds and they nearly always act in one unity. It's not. No, that's tritheism. That's three gods. Three persons, one essence means there is one God and he is triune. So, so what the Father is essentially, so is the Son essentially. So is the Spirit. So if the Father cannot look upon the Son because of sin, well, neither can the Son look upon himself. If he has become sin, it just gets really sloppy. If the Trinity were severed at the cross, we would have a lot of problems. First of all, we'd be introducing change into the essence of God. God would go from being triune to not being triune. He would cease to be God. 
Secondly, though, if the Trinity were severed, then the Son would also be severed from himself. Also, getting into the realm of absurdity. Do you see the problem? All sorts of strange and unnecessary contradictions arise from something that we just don't even have to speculate about to begin with. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Trinity was severed. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible are the, the, the Father and Son separated. Now, I'll admit it doesn't help that one of the best gospel hymns that we have has this confusing line, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. Absolutely beautiful song. Wonderful, rich gospel truths throughout that song, but a confusing lyric. And you might have noticed we don't sing that lyric anymore. So let me just lay it out straight. The eternal father did not forsake the eternal son. He did not despise the son. He did not even turn away from him, not even momentarily. Think of all that we've seen in Matthew up to this point. The father delights in the son. The son is his beloved. The father is pleased in the son. The son is doing the father's will. Not to mention that when it comes to the sacrificial system, which is really what's happening here, the Bible repeatedly says God is pleased with the aroma of the sacrifices on the altar. 2 Corinthians 2.15 even says that those who are in Christ are the pleasing aroma of Christ to God. That doesn't mean Jesus smells good. That's a reference to the sacrifice of Christ. God was pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. He wasn't disgusted. He wasn't revolted by it. This was his will. So there is no severing. There's no separation. There's no temporary schism in space and time happening here. So let's put that idea behind us once and for all, and let's focus on what this does mean, okay? So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've got to see that this comes directly from the first verse of Psalm 22. And knowing that this is Psalm 22, that brings us to another question. You'd ask is this, is Jesus feeling this extreme pain of the cross, and so he says this, and it coincidentally happens to be the same thing that Psalm 22 verse 1 says, the exact same thing? Or is he intentionally quoting Psalm 22. Well, with 27 chapters of behind us, we've seen this as a pattern for Matthew. It shows, whenever he does this, it's showing fulfillment. This isn't a coincidence. This is a deliberate quote. This does not mean, though, that Jesus is not feeling pain here. He's not just an actor saying his lines. Right? So don't, don't mistake me. Because he's quoting Psalm 22.1 does not mean that he's just quoting it. Jesus felt the agony of the cross. He felt the physical pain. He felt the spiritual torment. But what we need to see is that Jesus, knowing that he is Messiah, is interpreting his agony through Scripture. Let me say that again. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, on the cross, he's interpreting 
his agony through Scripture. So what is Psalm 22 about? Well, it begins with that same quote. My God, it's a question really. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this question, David, Israel's king, David wrote the psalm. And because he's the king, that means he is Israel's representative. Really important here. And he is experiencing some sort of suffering. The Bible doesn't tell us what suffering he's enduring. We know from the psalm that he's, he's surrounded by enemies. They're mocking him. They're deriding him. They're threatening him. He, he is near death, or at least he thinks he's near death. And yet, David knows that the reason he is enduring this is because of human sin. He's experiencing the consequences of human sin. Not just his sin, though David knows that he's guilty. That's why he says in, in that passage, I'm a worm, not a man. But he's also recognizing that he is experiencing the consequences of Adam's sin. The sin of Adam led to humanity's exile from the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God, away from the life source of God, away from the place where God gives his blessings. And this exile of humanity is the source of all suffering. Think about the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve are exiled. Murder. Murder is the first thing that happens after. David is saying that in his suffering, he feels the weight of that original separation, that exile. He feels the pain of being outside of the protection of God, handed over to men who hate him. And Jesus then is saying something very similar. He's crying out as a human, but not just any human. Jesus is, is someone who knows the joy of being in the presence of God. And now as a man, because he's taken on flesh as a man, he's experiencing the full weight of humanity's exile. He's feeling the hatred of Cain. He's feeling the spite of the offspring of the serpent. And he knows that it is God who is not only permitting this, but God has willed this. That's not all that Psalm 22 is about. Psalm 22 isn't a, a lament, it's a victory psalm. As David contemplates his suffering, it leads him to dwell on God's promises. So he goes from realizing the suffering of humanity to realizing that God has something better in store. Even though he feels the suffering of being human, he knows that God is faithful. And one day the suffering will be brought to an end. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. What's he saying? He's saying God is faithful to his promises in the past. He's going to be faithful to his promise in the future. One day, here's the promise David is banking on. One day, the promised king from David's lineage will bring about an end to the exile. That's what he's looking forward to. Look, he says as much in verses 27 and 28. 
all of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship, look at the words he uses, before you. Well, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. This is kingdom of heaven stuff. This is looking forward to the kingdom of God in fulfillment stuff. Okay, so so when the promised Messiah who is king over Israel and all the nations comes, then all the families of the nations will worship before God. That means not just Israel, but all the nations will be in his presence. The exile will be over. The psalm ends with a hopeful proclamation. What the psalmist says at the end, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness, who's the Messiah's righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That is, God has accomplished the salvation of his people through the promised son of David. Okay, so so, so the psalm begins with the misery of the exile brought about by sin, and it ends with the restoration of humanity accomplished by God's Messiah. And that's the psalm that Jesus is interpreting his suffering through. Jesus is saying, first of all, I am the Davidic king. I am Israel's representative king. Israel's federal head. So so whatever good happens to Jesus benefits Israel. Whatever bad happens to him also affects Israel. That's what it means that he is Messiah. Israel's destiny is bound up in her king. He's dying. And if he is dying as Israel's representative, then he is dying for Israel. Israel. He is the focal point of the punishment that God is talking about in Amos 8. Israel's sin is being dealt with in Jesus. But the psalm says more than that. As Messiah, he's also humanity's representative. So his death isn't just for Israel. It's also, as as John later says, for the world. If all of the nations are going to be able to worship God in God's presence as a result of God's work through him, then something about his work must also benefit us, right? It's because he is also our representative. So this forsakenness then, in verse 46, it's not a separation between the Father the Son, but the separation between God and humanity. A separation that, because of what Christ is doing, is coming to an end. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Paul speaking the good news to you and me. And you, who once were alienated, exiled, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has done it. 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him in his presence. Psalm 22, being fulfilled in Christ for all of us. Christ has taken on human flesh and entered into our exile in order to bring us out. He he entered into our world, not just as the deity from heaven, but as a man. He took on our flesh. That means he took on the temptations of the flesh, and he endured them. He took on the suffering of the flesh, the suffering of the abandonment of his closest friends, the suffering of the rejection of his family, the suffering of the rejection of his own people, the suffering of injustice. The worst, the worst of what humanity in our sin can do to a man, Christ endured that as a man. And as our representative king, he became one of us so that he could represent us as our sin bearer. Christ entered into our exile so he could end it. And that's why we praise him. That's why the psalmist says and why we repeat it as not Old Testament, old stuff, but as a new new thing that God has done. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. He has done it because he has. Amen. Let's pray and praise him.